All right, everybody. I think uh, I think we'll get going. I think we'll get going. P Peter and I talked. Peter and I talked a little while ago, and we think what what we're going to do is I'm going to I'm going to finish up with this talk on on 10, 11, and 12, and uh, and we're going to let everybody out of here a little early. Is uh, is that okay with everybody? Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I know. Sometimes sitting this long is is really really difficult. You know. Um, you know, I want to th I want to thank Brian. I want to thank Otto. I want to thank everybody that had any service commitments here. Uh, this has really, really been a fun event uh, for me, and I know it has been for Peter too. There's, there's just been a great energy. Everybody came up and you know thanked us for being here and talked with us. It's just there's such a wonderful spirit in this room, and I can't tell you how much I, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed being a part of your weekend. Uh, I, I really did. Now, you know, Peter was really talking some, uh, some great stuff about amends, about living in the world of the spirit. You know, we're, we're living in the world of the spirit. We're, um, we're, we've been rocketed in, you know, to a new dimension of reality. There's so many wonderful terms. You know, when you, when you, when you look at the big book, the big book is very, very deep with, with how it describes um, the divine, basically. Father of light. The great reality, power greater than ourselves. There's just so much language in here that is so open and so welcoming uh, for people like us to look at, you know, living a spiritual life. It's, it's a wonderful... Now, with, without exaggeration, I've been through the book Alcoholics Anonymous 700 times. I mean, when you think about all the people that I've gone through the book with, when you think about all the workshops I've listened to, when you think about all the workshops I've done, when you think about all the big book meetings I've gone to, you know, it's probably somewhere around, around, around that amount of times I've been exposed to this material. It's almost memorized. And here's the thing, here's the magic I find in this book. This book is so deep that every single time I move through it, something else pops up. Something else grabs my attention and I look at something a little bit differently. Or I see that, you know, there's a deeper meaning. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing book. And when I look back on the, the, the people that were putting this together, <laughs> you know, Bill and Hank and, 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 and Ruth and all, you know, the people that are typing it up and going through all the different drafts, I am amazed at how how it really nails us as far as what the problem is, and it really lays out a solution that works. Uh, and it just it continues to continues to amaze me. And, and I'm you know I'm so grateful uh, for the uh, the early AA members and and their decision to put this book together, because if they would have left us to just make it up ourselves, you know I I don't know that we would have. Uh, we would have held on to the real, the core principles of this whole thing. Now, I'm going to move into step 10. I see step 10 today as a way to be present, as a way to be mindful of living the spiritual life. There, there's some exercises in step 10. There's some instructions in step 10 that, uh, that I, I need to understand and I need to apply but I really see it as my practicing the principles step. I, I see it as my walking around during the day. I need to remember, I need to remember that I need to live a, a spiritual life to survive this thing called alcoholism. You know, so on page 84, this thought brings us to step 10. Well, what thought? Well, the, the, the ninth step promises that we've all heard, you know, a new freedom and a new happiness, you know, those promises have been carrot-sticked to us, you know, so many times. But really what they are is, is they're manifestations of the experience that we have when we're doing amends, and when we're really serious about the amends process. They manifest themselves, and uh, they call them in this book Promises. So this thought brings us to step 10. Step 10 suggests that we continue to take personal inventory. I learned a lot with personal inventory. I learned to identify the various manifestations of self that defeat me. So I need, I need to continue to do that, right? I need to continue. I don't want 
defeat. <laughs> I want my life to get better. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to be stepping on my, my own feet all the time. So, so I need to learn how to do that. Uh, continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. I, I learned this in step nine. I went into step nine really seeing it as, as a punishment step. Oh, you know, I've got to go make amends. Well, when I got to the other side, I saw it as a freedom step. I saw, I saw it as a liberation, a liberation from the emotional, emotional crap that I had within me. I mean, I did so much damage out there. You know, I just, I just couldn't carry that stuff around anymore. I go, I go through the immense and, uh, uh, you know, I'm walking easy. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, living, I'm living a cleaner life. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So I'm to vigorously continue to take personal inventory and vigorously to set right the wrongs that I caused throughout the day. And I'm going to continue to make mistakes. Peter was, Peter was talking about it before, and I, you know, I'll, I'll emphasize this as well. This isn't about becoming a person, perfect person. You know, this, this is not about me you know, being a perfect person. I, I don't even like perfect people. You ever, you ever have like a perfect person come over your house and make you look bad? You know? Why aren't you more like Harry? You know? He's going to law school and he's got a nice girl. You know, I hate Harry. You know? So it's, it's, not, about, it's not about becoming perfect. What this stuff, folks, what this stuff does is it renders us useful. This whole process renders us useful. It gets us out of our own way so that, so, so that we can helpful, be helpful and useful. Our next function is to grow in understanding effect, and effectiveness, and it should continue for our lifetime. Remember, it says that we need to seek. We need to seek and, and, and continue to grow. Now, I believe the steps 10 and 11 are really my growth steps. I've had an experience with the first nine steps. I've had kind of an awakening as the first nine steps. But 10 and 11, because it's asking me to continue to practice this stuff, they're really growth steps. They're, they're really you know, enabling me uh, to, to just get better at living the spiritual life. I'm to continue to watch for selfishness, resentment, dishonesty, and fear. Where did, where did I see those before? Those are manifestations of self that defeat me. I'm to continue to watch for them. Just watch. I'm to, I'm to, I'm to remain present and awake to when these things crop up. And when they crop up, I am to ask God to remove them. Discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if I've harmed anyone. This is my response to those manifestations of self that defeat me. I, you know, this stuff works. I'm telling you. You know, the more I do that, the more those manifestations of self become removed or set aside or reduced. You know, wh whatever your experience is. But this stuff really does work on them. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our, is our, our code. Um, we turn our thoughts to someone we can help. That's the being rendered useful kind of a thing. You know, listen, I, I was not useful. When I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, it was, I told you it was the time of fellowship, right? And everybody was running around. And, and, and if you were a newcomer, you know what you got a chance to do a lot? Move people. You know what I mean? Hey, so-and-so's moving. Come on, we're going to go help them move. I'm like, I'm like, who? Do I know them? <laughs> you know? You want me to help, help somebody move? I didn't even know who that is. You want me to help move them? You know? I mean, it was early lessons in being selfless and being helpful. Uh, it was great fellowship back in the 90s. Every, everybody was a lunatic back then. Okay, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. 
How can I best serve thee? Thy will not be thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. What thoughts should go with us constantly? You know, the vision of God's will in all of our activities and the thought, how can I best serve thee? Your will, not my will, be done. Remember, I've, I've made a decision to stop playing God. For that really to mean anything, you know, God's got to start to take some, some responsibility for this whole thing. And, and this, is a, this is a way of, of me connecting with God. You know, Peter was right. God's always been there. It's, it's been, I have thrown up things because of self-will that have blocked me off from connection with the divine. And so, so those things have to be knocked back down. And these are some of the practices that work really, really good with that. And we can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. The willpower in, you know, removing the things, recognizing and removing the things that are blocking me off from the divine. Um, all right, step 11. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. Now, you know, I, I, got, I got to tell you, I, I come in here with a lot of old ideas. I come in here with ideas about religion. I come in here with ideas about spirituality. And I really, this book begs me to lay aside prejudice and tells me I need to get rid of my old ideas. Why? Uh, I need to get rid of my old ideas because they're going to block me off they're the things that are going to get in the way of a new experience or new information or new understanding, the ideas that I already have. I got, I got to tell this story because it was so funny. You know, this is the set-aside group, right? So, so the set-aside prayer, uh, originally, my understanding is it came from Don Pritz. And Don, Don had a couple of sponsees who were kind of difficult. And he gave him an exercise. He gave him a prayer. You know, listen, say this prayer. God, God you know, you know. Please, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about AA, about the steps, about recovery, you know, but help me set this aside so I, so I can have a new experience. And, and he gave that prayer out to Joe Hawk, maybe some other people, right? And then when Joe Hawk, later, later in his recovery, Joe Hawk and Mark Houston are running around doing workshops everywhere. And if you've not heard those workshops, you know, get a hold of some of those 90s workshops. They're unbelievable. And anyway, um, they put, that, they put that as a prayer, you know, in that workshop. And now a lot of groups, I think our group was one of the first groups ever to do it. We, we, we've replaced the serenity prayer with the set-aside prayer. You know, this is a big book work group, you know, set aside everything so that you can be open to a new, a new idea. Now, I'm explaining this at a, at a, at a workshop I, I was doing down in uh, Columbus, Georgia, a couple of weeks ago uh, with my buddy Rich B. And I'm given the spiel on what the set-aside prayer really is, is meant to do and what it's, what it's used for. And when I get done, this is what Rich does. Rich stands up and he goes, hey, everybody, got an announcement. Here's what we're going to do. There's two cases of brand new big books in the back. Now, we want you to have a new experience, so we've got brand new books for you. And he picks up a garbage can, he walks around, he starts saying, so throw your big books in the garbage can here, and we'll get you a brand new one. And he walks through the crowd, and not one person throws their big book in the garbage can. Would you throw your big book in the garbage can with all your notes and all that stuff, right? No. So, and then he sits back down with an empty garbage can, and he goes, he goes, hey, everybody. That's the set-aside prayer. Do you see how hard you want to hang on to your old experience? And everybody started, started to kind of, kind of get it. You, you know, uh, I'm, uh, listen, I wouldn't have thrown my big book away either. <laughs> so there's some disciplines in step 11 that I'm just going to briefly cover because I, I want to get to step 12. I think that's very important. So there's upon awakening. Uh, there's when we retire at night, and then there's as we move through the day. And these, these, are, these are meditative processes that we need to start to practice. Now, I will also say none of us practice this stuff perfectly. You know what I mean? Like this, the spiritual life is not a theory 
we have to live it. So what we do is, is we, we start to live this stuff as we can. We're each going to have a different experience with it. I would just suggest that you really try to make an effort. But none of us are going to do this perfectly, and there's going to be times when we don't do it, and there's going to be times when we miss it. And it's a real good thing that this is a pass-fail experience and not graded. You know what I mean? Anyway, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Again, manifestations of self. We're to ask ourselves when we retire at night, have, have those things... Have we experienced those things? Uh, do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? That's almost always a no for me, by the way, when I answer this. <coughs> what, could, what, could, what could we have done better? Uh, were, we think, were we thinking of ourselves uh, uh, most of the time, or were we thinking of what we could do for others? These are questions that we, we should be awake to uh, present to uh, when we retire at night. Now, this is a constructive exercise. I used to beat myself up. You know, oh, I can't believe I was so stupid. You know, when my boss said this, I should have said that. You know, I, th that, was, that was my retiring at night. This is a constructive process. We're, we're, we're only trying to recognize where, where, we can, where we can, you know, engage in improvement is really what this is, a, what this is about. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measure, measures should be taken. Now, in the Oxford group, you almost need to know this for context in this step 11. In the Oxford group, they, they had, a, they had a, a practice of listening for God. And how, how they would do that, it was like they would go into prayer and they would go into meditation and they would get silent and they would have a, a pad and a pen. Handy, and if there were guided thoughts, intuitive thoughts, they, they'd write them down. And they believed that they could, they could refine that skill set to the point where they were receiving inspiration from the divine. They actually thought that they could listen to God. And some of that ended up in the 11th step, and a lot of it didn't. But that's really where Bill and Bob were. They would do this, they would do this practice to try to seek Try to seek divine guidance because, you know, we're not managing our, our lives anymore. We're looking for, for God's, God, God's direction. This is kind of how they were getting God's direction, the, the intuitive thought. Um, on awakening, let's look at on awakening. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Self-pity, dishonest, self-seeking motives, manifestations of self. We're, we're over and over and over again, we're being asked to identify these things. Why? Because our life is a failure with them. So... So on awakening, we think about the 24 hours ahead. This is a contemplative exercise. We're supposed to think about what we're going to do today. You know, I've got to go to work, you know, and after work, you know, I've got to go to soccer practice to see, you know, so-and-so's kid, you know, kick goals. I mean, whatever is, whatever is going on, we, 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 we look at our day ahead and we try to plan for it. Now... Now, meditation, meditation for me was not, I, when, when you said to me meditation, what came into my mind was sitting in a lotus position, burning incense, chanting Om. Because what had happened is in the 60s and 70s, the Eastern forms of meditation showed up in the United States in a big way. Transcendental meditation, the Maharishi. The Beatles brought the Maharishi over, for God's sake. You know, everybody's paying attention to it now. And, and this is an, these are Eastern forms of meditation. And if you do Eastern forms of meditation, God bless you. But that's not what the big book is talking about. It's talking about really a, a contemplative exercise that's constructive, that has purpose. It's not about emptying your mind. It, it's about focusing your mind. So, so um, 
In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for, for inspiration and an intuitive thought or decision. We try to, we try to begin to, as, as we live a more and more spiritual life, we begin to trust and rely upon intuition. Intuition is knowing without conscious thought. You just kind of know, you know, and we're looking, we're looking for that kind of guidance in our lives as we move through our lives. Remember, we, we, had, to, we had to quit playing God. We had to admit that the management of our life was not a success. So these are ways that we try to bring the divine into the, to the management function of our lives. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer uh, that would be shown all through the day, what our next step is to be, uh, that we'd be given uh, anything we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and, and are careful to make uh, no requests for ourselves. Um, all right, here's the as we go through the day uh, part of this. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. So things are going to come up in our lives that, you know, we're, we're going to be challenged with. I mean, we're all out there in the real world. You know, we're going to be challenged with stuff. This is telling us, don't just do something, stand there. That's what this is telling us, right? And wait for an intuitive thought or action. Don't, don't react. Half of my problem was I would react. What did you say? What the hell did you just say? I know what you meant by that. You know, I mean, you know, I was like Mr. Reactive. You know, don't just do something. Stand there. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. You know, it asks us to do that in, in step 10. As, as well. We let God discipline us in this simple way that we've outlined. Now, if you're a sponsee of mine, prior to even getting into amends, I have you looking really, really deeply into step 10 and step 11 and applying what you can apply in step 10 and 11 into your life. You know, right after the fifth step is really when I ask you to start looking at this. Because these, are, these are, are spiritual principles and practices that really have to become a, a lifetime thing. You know, if we're going to continue to grow in effectiveness and understanding, we need something like this to be practicing, you know, for, for, that, for that to happen. Now, that's just like a brief outline on 10 and 11. Uh, if you have a sponsor or a spiritual advisor, go, go deep with them on this stuff. The longer I'm sober, the more uh, important I believe step 10 and step 11 are. Uh, I, you know, I believe it's all in step 10 and, and, and step 11. And if, and if you do a really, really good job with the exercises in 10 and 11 and they become disciplined in your life, you know, your, your life is going to show it. And there's, there's really going to be some, uh, some great things that, that you're, you're going to experience. And, you, and you're not going to shoot yourself in the foot as much as, uh, as before you uh, got exposed to that. All right, step 12. Practical experience shows that nothing will, will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Bill learned this after he went through the, the Oxford group, you know, uh, principles, and he started working with other alcoholics. One, you know, one day he's like, he, he's talking to Lois. And he, Lois, you know, I haven't been able to get one of these guys sober. And she looked at him and she said, you're sober, you're sober. So sometimes it's our job to carry the message. Remember, Peter was saying we're not in the outcome business, right? But it's our job, it's our job to carry this message to other alcoholics. And, and many of us do it in many different, many different ways. There, there's, there's instructions in the chapter working with others, and I believe that's how we're supposed to work one-on-one. -on -one with another alcoholic, but there's a million ways to be of service. There's ways to make sure that the alcoholic can get to the message. There's carrying the message to the alcoholic, and there's, and there's ensuring that the message is going to be there when the alcoholic needs it. 
You know, there's all, all types of service. What, but but what, the, what the first part of this chapter speaks about is how I am supposed to be dealing one-on-one -on -one with an alcoholic. Uh, right off the bat, he starts talking about a bunch of promises. Now, what I want to cover, what I want to cover is the first visit and the second visit. I believe the chapter Working with Others is the most overlooked and underutilized chapter in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I know so many people stop, you know, before the chapter Working with Others when they get done with step 11. And, you know, because we just do it different now. You know, we, you know, we got more meetings now and, you know, we got, we got sober bowling. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, we have. It's not the 30s anymore, right? And, and I thought that way too, because what, you know, when I saw when I saw what it was asking me to do in this book, it was almost like it's an overreaction. Like, dude, that's harsh. You know, if so, if somebody's unwilling to work the steps with me, you know, I'm supposed to let them go. You know, that's that's pretty harsh. I've come to believe that that's compassionate. It's not harsh. Because if I allow an alcoholic to believe that I can help them manage an unmanageable life without offering them a solution, I'm not doing them any favors. And I made a lot of mistakes early on as a sponsor. Somebody would come up to me, hey, Chris, you know, would you sponsor me? Sure. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want me to do? <laughs> you know? You know? I mean, it was just awful. And they were drinking on me right and left. You ever have sponsees drink on you? Make you look bad? <laughs> Sorry, yours. You know, he's hitting on all the new girls and he's borrowing money. Took somebody's car. Yeah, Harry's mine. I'll, I'll talk to him. You know, so, so I, was, I was just, I was, I was making an attempt to help people manage it unmanageable. I couldn't even manage my, my own life. I'm going to help you manage yours. What this, what this chapter is doing is this chapter is pointing me, to, pointing me toward pointing someone else to the manager. The manager that's going to manage this stuff moving forward. Listen, I can encourage you to stay sober. And, and I do that with a lot of people in the fellowship. I'll encourage you, hey, keep coming back, you know? Hey, there's a good meeting on Tuesday night. Hey, you wanna go out and have coffee after? You know, I can be that guy. And I think, I think there's really, I think we really, really need to do that. That's part of the fellowship, right? Helping to encourage people to keep coming and staying sober. But that's a far cry from offering them a path to a solution to their problem of alcoholism. It's just, it's, it's the difference between night and day. It's a difference between black and white. It's a difference between life and death for some people, you know, uh, uh, pointing them toward, toward the solution. So let's look at the first visit, all right? It, it, there's some of the material in here is how you find an alcoholic. Now, remember, there was no meetings. There were two meetings back when this book was written. So go, go to priests, go to ministers, go to police courts, go to sanitariums, go, you know, go to the bar, wherever. Try to find alcoholics. Try to find someone who, who's alcoholic who might want to get over it, who might be willing to take some action to recover from alcoholism, try to find those. All right, we found one. What are we supposed to do? <coughs> Where do we find alcoholics like that today? We find, we find them in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. You know, uh, we find them in uh, rehab commitments. We find them in jail commitments. That we, you know, it's not as hard to find people who are willing, who might be willing uh, to go through this process anymore than, than uh, you know, the early AAs, they had to look all over the place. See your man alone if possible. Does this mean go on a 12-step call by yourself? No, it means if, you've, if you're at the guy's house and his family's there, you want to talk to him alone. You don't want to talk to him with the pissed-off family sitting next to you. You want to, you want to try to get some, uh, get some identification going. <coughs> it says this, after a while... Turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences, and encourage him to speak of himself. 
This is an identification process. Oh, dude, man, I don't know about you, but, but I drank a lot. Let, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about my drinking. Let me tell you a little bit about the bad stuff in my drinking, how bad it got. You know, you're, I, what you're doing is you're trying to help identify. The thing about alcoholism is, is did, 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 uh, did people yelling at you ever help? Did, did, did people criticize you, criticizing you and telling you you should do better, did, did that ever, ever really help? You know, but in identification, an identification, oh my God, this guy feels the way I feel. This guy is, it used to drink the way I drink now. You know, that's, that's a powerful connector. Uh, if he wishes to talk, let him do so. You try, hopefully, you get him to talk about his drinking, and there'll be that identification. Um, there's some more information in here uh, about, you know, which, whichever way it goes, you know, uh, uh, pay attention to that. Try to be awake while you're talking to this guy to know which direction to take the conversation. But then it says, when he sees you know all about the drinking game, Commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggle you made to stop. Show him a, a, about the mental twist that leads to the first drink of his spree. This is asking us to explain to them our first step truth. This is my first step truth. I honestly wanted to stop drinking and I couldn't. And once I started drinking, all bets were off. I always got drunk. We're supposed to, to we're supposed to I, hopefully get an identification by sharing this from our own experience. We suggest you do it as we have done on the chapter to, the al to alcoholism. If he's an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. Y you know, it might be the first time you ever hear somebody talk about that. You know, because I, you know, I never was sitting at the bar and all of a sudden somebody goes, oh man, the phenomenon of craving is on me. You know, I'm going to pass through the stages of a spree and I'll be, a, I'll be remorseful tomorrow. You know, I mean, that's not what they were saying at the bar. So this will be like the first time maybe he's ever heard this. If you, if you are satisfied he is an alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. You want to try to convince this person of hopelessness, of powerlessness, of lack of, of choice, power, and control. Don't, uh, don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to, to discuss it. Let him draw his own conclusions. Uh, um, if he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can, if he's not too alcoholic. But insist that if he's severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. You know, this, this, you're, you're to honestly give them the real truth as you know it about alcoholism and what alcoholism has, can do. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed uh, who never realize their predicament. Um, it says, talk to him about uh, hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You can talk about hopelessness because, because obviously you're sitting there sober. Oh, man, it was hopeless. I, I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop drinking. Man, when I, when I drank, it was awful. Oh, the trouble, the trouble. Well, well, you quit drinking, didn't you? Yeah. So maybe there's a solution. So the person might get curious about, about what's going on with you. You will uh, soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of the alcoholic. Um, it says... Um, he, uh, even though your protege may not have uh, entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. It, it would be crazy if, if, they don't, if they're not curious about how you quit. If they've been serious about quitting, they're going to want to know how you quit. 
Let him ask you that question if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. This is the place, folks, where our story is important. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous has developed a speaker meeting where people talk about this stuff in a speaker format. And that's, that's all well and good. But the real place, the real place for our story is right here in front, you know, knee to knee with another alcoholic. Stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be atheist or agnostic, make it, make, uh, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose a conception he likes provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. We're supposed to go that deep with somebody on the first visit. We're supposed to go that deep with somebody on the first visit. When dealing with such a person, uh, you better use everyday language to describe it. Your prospect may not may belong to a religious denomination. You know, there's a there's there, there's some more there's some more information there. And then on page 94, it says, outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, a four-step, how you straightened out your past, talk about eight and nine, and why you're now endeavoring to be helpful to him, talk about what the 12-step is. This is all on the first visit. It is important that he realize uh, that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital role in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. And, and those of us who've done a lot of 12-step calls uh, understand that that's absolutely true. Man, I've never felt better than when I leave a 12-step call, whether, whether it's a successful one or not, according to the person you know, we're visiting. Make it plain that he's under no obligation to you, that you only hope he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is he placed the welfare of other people ahead of his own. <laughs> on the first visit, you're going to be sharing that to the alcoholic. You know, it's going to, sorry, buddy, but it's going to be more important that you place everybody else's welfare ahead of your own. What? <laughs> you know, this is, this is really, really powerful stuff, but I'm telling you, I believe in it today. I believe in it today. Make it clear that he's not under any pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wish to, wishes to call it off. Um, Maybe you've disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions if he feels hopeless. If step one really connects with the person, you know, that's, that's very, very, uh, very, very important. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. He may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning. Uh, which was, requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If he does show interest, lend him your copy of this book. So if you're on a 12-step call, what do you got to have? You don't want your Myers book, you know, that, that, that you got notes in from the last 20 years. You know, have, have, a, have, a, have a big book with you that you can pass on. And fr unless your friend wants to talk further about himself, do not wear out your welcome. Give him a chance to think it over. If you do stay, let him steer the conversation any direction he likes. So, uh, sometimes a new man is anxious to proceed at once, sometimes not. Uh, Never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kid of spiritual tools that work for you. That's one thing. You, you know, there's so much stigma in alcoholism. I'm, hope, I'm hoping we don't continue to, to push it. You know what I mean? Like, like in the chapter, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great line in, in, in the chapter to the employers. And I'm going to read it, okay? I'm going to digress. This is from the chapter uh, to the employers. It says, when dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. I love that, right? What did we look like out there? We looked weak, 
stupid and irresponsible to the people that we're around. I'm sorry to tell you that if you don't know it already. But I'll tell you what, we didn't feel weak, stupid, and irresponsible, did we? We were being driven by all this stuff. We meant well. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So, so, so as a sponsor, sometimes I have the capacity to look at somebody like they're weak, stupid, and irresponsible. I got to let that stuff go. This is alcoholism, folks. You know what I mean? And I, and, and, and I got to lay off the judgment. And I got to lay off the, the stigma. And, and I, I got to, you know, you know it's, al it's alcoholism. I just got to focus on being helpful. You know, uh, I, I, I just do. So, uh, let's see, where the hell am I? If he's not interested in your solutions, if he, is, if he, if he expects you to act, act as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may need to drop him until he changes his, his mind. If he wants you to be the drama coach, you know, that's what I wanted from my first sponsor. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe all the stuff that oh, this happened to me today. It's just crazy. All these people are crazy. Oh, you know what I believe? You know, I, I expected a drama coach. Uh, we're, we're not supposed to be that. We're not supposed to be a life coach. We're not supposed to be a counselor. We're, you know, we're, we're, what we're supposed to be is a guide, a guide toward the solution. The solution being a conscious contact with God as we understand him. That, that's, the, that's the ultimate brass ring. I'm just supposed to be helpful going in that direction. I'm going to try to be helpful. Not perfect, you know, but I'm going to try to be helpful. Um, so we may have to drop somebody if they're not willing to go through the steps. Holy mackerel. If somebody's not willing, on the first visit, if somebody's, you know, not willing to move forward, I'm supposed to drop them. Now, I saw that as crazy. I saw that as irresponsible when I first read this chapter. Again, I believe it's compassionate. Now, I'm, suppo I'm supposed to be helpful through this whole process. And if somebody says, you know, you know, I don't think that stuff is going to be necessary in my case. <laughs> fine. It says nothing in this book about bringing somebody to a meeting. It, sa it says that we're supposed to be dealing with them one-on-one. -on -one. Back in the early days, if you weren't serious about this stuff, they weren't going to bring you to a meeting. Now, today, today, people bust people to our meetings. They're not even alcoholic, and they're busting them into our meetings. It's just it's changed, and I'm, I'm, I'm not judging, because <laughs> far be it from me to, to judge anything. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. But what it's asking us to do in here is to ensure that somebody's serious and willing to go to any lengths. That's what it's asking us to do. Why? Because that's the compassionate thing. That's the compassionate approach. Rather than let somebody sit in the back of the room languishing month after month after month, not being asked to be accountable to a spiritual program of recovery and to just slowly spiritually die back there until they finally relapse, that's not compassionate. You know what I mean? If he, if, he sincerely, if he sincerely is interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. So you leave him the book. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. If he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, if he wants to do primal scream therapy or, you know, when I first got sober, there were teddy bear huggers. You know, if he wants to teddy bear hug for a while, uh, you know, it, it basically says, uh, encourage him to follow his own conscience. <laughs> uh, we have no monopoly on God. You know, we merely have an approach that worked with us. But point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. Let it go. Let it go at that. Um, do not be discouraged if your pro prospect does not respond at once. Here's, here's the thing. When I first started to sponsor, I said yes to everybody, and then they drank on me. 
And it was almost like, it was almost like somebody leaving the team. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like I had this crew of guys and somebody drop off. And it, 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 was, it was nuts the, the way I was dealing with it. This basically says quality beats quantity. You know what I mean? Like, so, so if someone isn't willing to work a recovery program with you, move on. Maybe the next person will. If that person doesn't, move on. Maybe that next person will. But don't waste a whole ton of time on somebody who's not willing. I can't tell you. I wish I had the hours back that I tried to help somebody manage an unmanageable life. And they, and they relapsed on me. You, you know what I mean? Like, so, so our, our time, this book is saying our time is incredibly valuable and it should not be wasted. We are recovered alcoholics. That makes us uniquely useful to be helpful to other people. And we should not waste our time with people who, who may not be, you know, Bill is very non-judgmental. They cannot or will not give themselves to this simple program. They're not at fault. Okay, he's very non-judgmental. But we're supposed to try to find people who are willing. And the people who are willing, those are going to, I'm telling you, I've got some of those guys in my life. They're friends of mine for life. They're the fellowship I crave. We're, we're, we're like blood brothers. You know, these are people who've gone through the steps with me 20, 30 years ago, and we're still connected at the hip. You, you know, like that's what he's asking us to develop here, a fellowship that we crave. Not somebody that comes to AA for two years and then you never see him again. You know, this is, this, is about, this is about the roots, the roots of Alcoholics Anonymous, the people that are going to really stay. So it says, if your prospect does not respond at once, search out another alcoholic and try again. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you, meaning sit down and do the step work. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny another alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. Uh, our, our fellowship failed with, uh, with, with a, a ton of people in the early days. And then he found Bob. And then they found Bill Dotson. And then they built Alcoholics Anonymous as we know it today. So folks, that's the first visit, you know, that's our, all that stuff is the first visit. Suppose now you're, you're making uh, your second visit to a man. We're moving into the second visit now, okay? He's read this volume and said he's, he's prepared to go through the 12 steps of the program of recovery. Now, how many people is that going to be that you lend the big book and then when you come back, they've read it and they're, they're like, I'm all in. I'm all in. It's not going to be a lot, is it? It's not going to be a lot. So, <laughs> our time is incredibly valuable. We get the people that are willing. We move them through the steps. We, we develop the fellowship we crave. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you're, you're available if he wish, wishes to make a decision, the third step, and tell his story, the fifth step, but do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. You know, uh, so, so here's some more instructions, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. You, you have to act a good Samaritan every day if need be. It, these are the 12 inconveniences. You, you, you've all heard of the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the 12 concepts. These are the 12 inconveniences. <laughs> they are. If you want, I'll number them. Uh, uh, you have to act a good Samaritan day, if need be. It may, it may, number one, it may mean the loss of many nights' sleep and great interference with your pleasures. Absolutely. Two, interruptions to your business. Three, it may mean sharing your money in your home, uh, uh, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she's neglected. A drunk may smash your furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he's violent. All of my sponsees, I have them take martial arts training because some people need a meeting. Some people need a beating. <laughs> Sometimes you will have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. 
Now, that's one thing I just don't do. This is the one inconvenience that I just don't do. I had some bad experience being the sedative administrator uh, a couple of times. And, uh, you know, I remember this qua the quaalude epidemic of 73. Uh, and I just, I just don't administer sedatives anymore after that. It, it, it really went south. Uh, about 50 people fell out in high school, you know, do, overdosing on quaaludes. Uh, another time, you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. This, the, these are the 12 inconveniences. Obviously, you will have to meet uh, such of these. So, so here's, here's, here's my final thought. <clears throat> About a little over two years ago, the unthinkable happened. This thing called COVID hit, and literally, at least in the Northeast, every single Alcoholics Anonymous meeting shut its door. Oh my God, what, you know, if you would have told me that was gonna happen, I, I would have not believed you. That is, that is, I can't imagine a bigger disaster. Alcoholics Anonymous was shut out. Well, it took us about five minutes to, to find this thing called Zoom, right? And, and we're, we're showing up upside down and unmuted and bringing the, bringing the laptop into the bathroom with us, you know, I mean, we're making every mistake that you can make, right? But, but we, uh, we intuitively understood we needed to stick together, right? We needed, like we needed to be together. We, you know, we were resourceful. And then we found parking lot meetings and people's in the basement meetings, the, 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 real, the real alcoholics I'm talking about. Uh, and, and, and we knew that we needed to stick together. Now, half of us didn't. We've lost half of the fellowship since COVID. And I'm just, I'm just looking at the meetings that used to have 100 people that have 40 now. You, you know what I mean? Home groups that used to have 80 people that have 12 now. I, I mean, it's, it's coming back, right? But here's what I believe. I believe that this is the best opportunity in the world for us to be available to do this work, to do our job as 12, as 12 steppers. It is time. Do you know that overdoses have doubled in the last two years? Do you know that suicide has almost doubled among people with addictive illness? Do you know death because of alcohol has almost doubled? I'm in a position where I can get a hold of these statistics. You can trust me on this. It's bad. It's bad, and there are still sick and suffering all over the place, and guess what? Now that we're opening our meetings back up again, they're gonna be showing up, and it's gonna be time for us to do our job like we've never done it before, because, because we're, we're, we're not in the numbers we used to be, but the numbers are gonna be coming. And so what I would leave you with, what I would leave you with is I believe that it's, it's our job to be of, at the place where we're of maximum benefit uh, to especially other alcoholics. I believe nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking than intensive work with other alcoholics. I think it's going to be our job. I think the opportunity is going to be out there. And I think we're going to be able to help save a lot of lives if we do our job. I absolutely loved being here in Charlotte with all of you. North Carolina is really, really close to my heart. Thank you all. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. <laughs>